Well, it has been an exciting week this week as we've uh, had our missions conference. And then right after that, on Monday and Tuesday, we hosted the Master's Academy International, TMAI. It is uh, an association of training schools for pastors around the world. And uh, they met here last year and this year. And uh, they just want to extend to you uh, their thanks they said, the people at Calvary are so wonderful. Everybody was so happy and smiling and pampered them to death. Uh, I know the food ministry and people were serving and organizing, and they just expressed their gratitude for all that you did to serve them. And really, you need to just praise God that in serving them, you were able to help serve churches literally around the world. The impact of the Masters Academy International is pretty incredible because when you think about it, all the men who came are training groups of pastors who are training entire churches. So um, it's a really neat ministry opportunity that God gave us. And so we're praising God for being able to have an opportunity to do that. Of course, following that was the Shepherds Conference where pastors from around the world come at Grace Community Church to just encourage one another to hear good teaching and to uh, go back with uh, probably more books than they should have purchased. But um, that's one of the fun things about it to see if you can read all the books that you got that year before the next Shepherds Conference. So um, we were able to do that, and I know there was a, a group of men from Calvary who also went to that. But because all the pastors have come, um, I had the opportunity of asking a good friend of mine, Rick Gertzen. Rick and I went to uh, seminary together. We graduated in 1991. He pastors uh, Grace Bible Church in Hutchison, Kansas. And so sometimes when I go, and you've probably seen the prayer sheet, if you go through that, that I'm going to Kansas, it's usually to go see him. And uh, he uh, lets me preach, and uh, I've done some marriage conferences and some youth stuff and some hunting. And um, it's really good. So when he, when, what's neat about it is when he comes here, I ask him, do you want to go to the mall? And um, it's an even trade. Uh, to either go to the mall or hunting, you know. So uh, that's what we do here in California, Starbucks and the mall, I guess. Um, but anyways, we have the, the privilege of having him come this morning and to bring God's word to us. Uh, out of all the churches that I visit, and I visit a lot of, a lot of churches around the world, uh, Grace Bible Church in Hutchison is really the most like Calvary Bible Church. It's a great fellowship of believers, happy people who love the Lord and love his word. So Rick, come on up and bring God's word to us. Well, thank you, Jack. It's great to be here with you guys, and we appreciate you guys loaning Jack to us as often as you do, and wish you would do it more. But uh, we enjoy his ministry very much. You guys have a very special man in this pulpit. I think you know that, who loves the Lord God with all his heart, very exact with his exposition and his great passion for him as well. Well, I was a little nervous first hour. That's over, so I'm going to let it rip. So, uh, well, I got over all that. So anyway, take your Bibles and join me in First Peter chapter 2. When Jack comes out and other men come out, one of our goals is to, in fact, send these guys back a little bit more rested and well cared for than when we got them. So I hope that's what you find when Jack comes back. We want him to teach a little bit, but we... We want to see some sights as well, and, and if since he likes hunting, I, I have to do it with him. It's a terrible thing, but uh, anyway, I'll, I'll do that. Anyway, it's good to be here. Great to come out and be a part of your body. First Corinthians, or First Corinthians, did I say First Corinthians a long time ago? How about First Peter? 
That's the passage I'm going to teach in. First Peter. I said I was out with nervousness. Maybe I'm not. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2 is our text this morning. Well, everybody's talking about Japan, right? What a, what a week. It's unbelievable what they went through. And obviously, as we watch and see, I uh, didn't see a lot of the shaking going on. But as you can see, that tsunami going through there and those poor people in the cars, the video clips that I saw kind of trapped in those things and cars bobbing like, like apples in there. It just breaks your heart for those people watching the Santa Cruz uh, uh, little uh, harbor just go, uh, just a ripple running through that. Amazing. The power of God in creation to know that there's uh, an earthquake in China and there's an earthquake in, in Japan of, of phenomenal magnitude. Know that two hours after the earthquake and, and the tsunami in Japan, there was a volcano that erupts in Indonesia. And just things, just what a crazy, crazy week. Um, I, one of my favorite websites is the U.S. Geological Society website, and you can go there and see all the the uh, earthquakes that have happened in the last week, and they're color-coded last day, last hour, and last week. And it's just amazing what takes place and what's going on. If there is a way to take away the human tragedy of natural disasters, natural disasters are pretty cool, right? Uh, but but the, the reality is people live there. And they breathe there, and their houses are there, and their businesses are there. It's hard to to take that away. But just if we look at the fact that they say the earth vibrated and shifted 10 inches on its axis on that earthquake. That the, the island of Japan went to the west 10 inches or 8 inches. How does that happen? I don't get how an island can move 8 inches. They said took place. It's an amazing display of the power that God has put into force. I love the power of nature and natural disasters. I don't like what it does to people, but it's an amazing thing to see and to witness. I'm glad that we have a video to show us these things. Uh, went through some earthquakes while I lived here and went to seminary at the Master's Seminary and, and uh, had a church down in uh, Hawthorne for a couple of years and I went through a couple of earthquakes, went through that. I've uh, been in some tornadoes. I've uh, been through some of those things. Uh, when I was going to the school here to get my doctorate and come out for a couple of years, we had a, a fire go through where I was staying with some friend's house and a, and a fire. I guess a bird landed on a, a high wire, fell down, lit the brush on fire. The fire started and I went back one afternoon and uh, the fire was headed toward their house. We're packing everything up, running it down to someplace else and trying to get all their valuables out of the house, standing in their backyard and watching the fire come up and all of a sudden you feel the rush of the wind at your back feeding the fire and the more winds coming the bigger the fire gets and oh, I'm grateful that they didn't lose any of their house or belongings but to come in afterwards and, and see all the embers and all just a black backyard completely and and see the devastation I stand in their backyard and see burnt coyotes and singed deer and, and what used to be rabbits and, and rats all over the place are just consumed by the amazing power that was there. I, I come by liking natural disasters kind of naturally. My, my dad uh, is also a pastor, and uh, I remember the first tornado I ever saw. Uh, the tornado was coming toward our house, and we got on a roof to watch it so we could see it better. And uh, that's what we did. Uh, dad grew up in the Midwest his whole life and kind of knows how uh, typically tornadoes t- stay on a trek. You can watch the, the clouds typically go from... 
moved to the, from the southwest to the northeast. And so you kind of know that. Now, the tornado in itself will zigzag in that path, but you kind of know. So Dad said, let's get on the roof. So we get on the roof. We watch that funnel cloud come out over our city and just kind of dip down, almost touch the ground and go right back up and never touch a thing. And stand there and watch it. I was just, I was captivated by it. And so whenever there's a south wind, it's kind of a humid day in Kansas, you kind of expect a thunderstorm to come. And so you begin to look to the west and wait for the clouds to start billowing up. And then they start getting higher and higher. And then finally they anvil off. If it's a bad one, you'll watch. And underneath, they'll start turning blue to an aqua. And it gets real green. You know, there's a big hailstorm coming. And as those things come, they normally form in the late afternoon and come through our town. The next morning, we all compare notes. Did you see what happened at your house? It blew this down. It ripped up my shingles. It left this many hailstones in the yard. I found a hailstone this big or they were this big. And we all compare notes and we talk about it because the awesome power of what just went through was so awesome in its power, you, you wanted to talk about it. It was amazing. We have a privilege of being the children of God and have moved from darkness to light, and we have had the awesome power of God affect our lives, wouldn't we want to talk about it? There's a natural disaster, and there's the awesome power of nature that just wows us on the one hand that we talk about nonstop. Why wouldn't we talk about the supernatural of God making something that was dead, your heart and mine, alive, taking a heart of stone and making it a heart of flesh? Peter tells us in our passage today that you and I have a purpose. If we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, that you and I have been moved from dark to light, from death to life for a reason. And that's what he tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2. He teaches us through 1 Peter that a major part of our position and privilege as children of God is that the position we have in Christ is a privilege. And the privilege that we have is the position. He does that in chapter 2. He talks about the fact that there's this cornerstone. And in this cornerstone, that cornerstone Jesus Christ has laid there, and you and I have a position in this cornerstone, but this is a privilege to be with him because we have life. As a result of that, we have a position. In fact, we are living stones because we've received our life from the life-giving stone. So we're alive, we have been given life from the life-giving stone. You and I are now living stones, and we are constructed into walls. This great temple of God. And all of that is connected to the cornerstone. This position that we have is a privilege, but it's a privilege to have the position. He kind of braids this together. Both of them feed off the other. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he begins by telling us that he's writing this book to the believers who are being persecuted throughout Asia Minor, Pontius, Galatians, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And then he says, those of you who are chosen, that God caused his salvation to fall upon us by his mercy. He sprinkled us with the blood of Christ. And by his mercy, verse 3, caused us to be born again to a living hope. What a privilege it is to be saved. But not just a living hope, but an inheritance. Not just an inheritance, but an inheritance that's protected by God himself. I I, I still can't get over that. I still can't get over that. I know that my dad has a little bit of money. I know that I'll never see a dime of it. That's fine. I want him to use it, and I want it. It's an inheritance I'm not counting on. But this inheritance I have from my Heavenly Father, I am counting and staking everything on. 
But he also tells us that we're going to have trials because these trials are going to come into our life. And through these trials that come into our life, you and I will be proven to be recipients of the, her- of the inheritance because through the trial, the approved part of our faith comes through. And so because Christ suffered, we suffer, and that's all part of it. But those sufferings cause us and help us to move us, to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of this earth, and we become holy because we are to be holy as He is holy. Later on in chapter 1, everything fades away. The grass, everything fades away, but what we have will never fade away because what we have has been delivered to us by the Word of God, the end of chapter 1. Therefore, because the Word of God endures forever, you and I are to be like the baby who desires the milk. We want that which will not fade away, that which endures. And so we go to him, chapter 2. He then begins to tell us that we come to him as a living stone, the living stone, the life-giving stone, his choice and precious in the sight of God, and we are all connected to him in position and in privilege, and therefore we move. But in verse 6, that very precious stone to you and I as believers is the very stone that is rejected by Israel. And then he comes to verse 9, and follow along as I read. But you making a difference between us and the rejectors. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter addresses the believers with the truth that they have possessed a tremendous, they do possess a tremendous privilege And the greatest of which is the fact that they are, in fact, possessed by God. It is a fact, I believe, which is a truth, should be most precious to us. Reminds me of that hymn, I am His and He is Mine. Right? One, I'm His, and two, He's Mine. It's a double, double layer. Loved with everlasting love, led by that, led by grace, that love to know. Gracious Spirit from above has taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine in a love which cannot cease. I am His, and He is mine. His forever, only His. Who the Lord and me shall part. Oh, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee, firstborn light and gloom decline. For while God and I shall be, I am His, and He is mine. What a truth, right? What a truth to know that I am His, and He claims me for His own. Peter tells us in verse 2 and 9 that the believer's place in Christ is a precious value. And we as believers then place precious value in our position in Christ. But with that precious value comes this precious responsibility that God has given us a purpose to fulfill in this life. First thing I want to talk to you about is the fact that you and I have a precious value of being chosen by God. I hope you believe that today. If you're here today and you name God as your Father and Christ as your Savior, I hope that you understand that you have a precious value of being chosen and that you hold it that way. 
He starts out by saying, but you. But you. He is drawing a clear distinction because he was talking about those who stumbled over the rock and rejected the rock, but you. You're different. You, you didn't reject the rock. He's talking to us as believers. There's a difference between an unbeliever and a believer. And you know what that difference is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. He starts out in chapter 2 saying, grow in the work, but you guys are connected to the stone, this living stone, this cornerstone. The unbelievers rejected that stone. You have a position of privilege in that stone. The difference between you and unbelievers are the fact that you have Jesus. If you're here today and you don't have Jesus, there's a difference between you and me. It's the acceptance of and connection to Jesus versus the rejection of him. That you there is emphatic. He wants to make clear that you and I who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior understand that there's a value to that stone, that living stone, and it's the fact that you and I are chosen. And being chosen is defined by the privilege. Look what it says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He gives us four privileges that we have, and he gives them to us in ascending order. Start out, we are part of the race. Second, we're part of the priesthood. Second, we're part of the next, we're part of the nation. And finally, the highest and the most honorable privilege is that He is our God and we are His. He possesses us. So, let's start with chosen race. Some of your translations may say chosen people. Chosen people. The chosen people are people where they, their chosen race, or people with a common heritage. Common heritage. For those of us who know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, we have been welcomed into the Father and to the Father's arms. We call Him Abba, Father. He is precious to us. We have a new birth and a new Father. Look at verse 23 of chapter 1 where He says this, For you have been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but of an imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. New Father. Our new birth transcends any other earthly distinction. The fact that we are people who are of God's own family and He is our Father and we have a new birth in Him, a spiritual birth that transcends anything earthly. There is no distinction that we can make. This is why any And all partiality based on earthly distinctions is absolutely abhorrent to God. Come here this morning, it doesn't matter what race we are. It doesn't matter what nationality we are. Met this pastor here this morning from Brazil. Doesn't matter. Makes no difference whatsoever. It doesn't matter what economic status you have. Whatever earthly distinction there could possibly be means nothing. There's no boasting. There's no delineation between you and me or me and you. There's only oneness. There's only oneness. We are of the same chosen father, same chosen race. We have the same dignity because the only dignity that we have is the fact that we have heredity in God. There's no other dignity than than that. These believers that Peter's writing to are being persecuted. 
They're being persecuted for one purpose, and that reason is because they have claimed God as their father and they've been chosen by God. It doesn't matter if they're Jew or Gentile. What matters is whether or not they claim Christ, and then they're persecuted. Now, this borrows from the terminology of the Old Testament, as much of the passage we're talking about today does. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of the earth. All the peoples, right? The Lord did not set His love on you, nor did He choose you because you are more than number. You're the fewest. The Lord loved you because He wanted to. He kept an oath, Deuteronomy says. Basically, what we're talking about through all four of these ascending orders is the doctrine of election. And I know you guys know that. Well, you understand the sovereignty of God. And that's role in your salvation, that God, by His loving grace and mercy, has chosen us, and He wanted to be our Father, and He's adopted us as His own, and we understand the doctrine of election. The doctrine of election always begins out hated, and then we becomes confused, and then it becomes very loved, as one understands it. As we work our way through that. When we don't understand it, we kind of hate that, and then we're kind of confused about it, and then we love it. I, I think the doctrine of election is like NyQuil. When you have a cold, it's time to go to the cabinet and pull out that green liquid, right? It doesn't taste good. It's bitter. It burns all the way down. But in the morning when you wake up because you were out for the entire night and you weren't up coughing and snorting and sneezing, you're like, oh, I love NyQuil. But you didn't like it before you went to bed. That's the doctrine of election. You go to it, it's kind of hated, it's confused, what's going on? And you wake up one day and you go, oh, I love that doctrine. There's some advantages to understanding the doctrine of election. The first one is that you, the doctrine of election removes my pride. It helps me understand that salvation is of God alone. I don't have a lot of time. It's going to have you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Wow. We weren't chosen because we were vast in number, that we were smart enough or brought something to the table, just like God did not choose Israel because they were a great nation. He chose them because they were a pitiful group in slavery. You and I, in slavery to sin, have been chosen by God and brought there, and so we say, what did we bring to the table? I brought my selfish, filthy, lustful heart, and God did away with that and created a new one through regeneration. And I say, thank you, Lord. No pride here. And I understand the work that God did in my heart was a work of God Himself. He loved me because He chose to love me. He had mercy on me because He chose to have mercy on me, just like He did Jacob. It's not up to the man. It doesn't depend on us who wills. It depends on God. I have no pride. The doctrine of election also teaches me that what happens in my salvation is exalts God's grace. 
Later on in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, To the praise of His glory and grace. I have been predestined and made part of His family. Why? To the praise and the glory of His grace He freely bestowed upon us. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. When I understand God's work and His sovereign act of salvation in my life, that I'm a part of a chosen race, I understand that God's grace is exalted because I didn't have anything with which to offer God. And finally, the doctrine of election induces my holiness. It induces me to holiness because God loves me first. That wonderful verse we learned so early in life in 1 John chapter 4. We loved him because he loves us. The very next chapter, very beginning of that part of that chapter, says because we love him, we love others. And because we love others, we keep his commandments. He loves us. We love Him return, and we love others, and we keep His commandments. Because of His love, it induces us to live a godly life. As I understand that God's love is what moved me to Him to begin with, and that was part of the means that I understand that I need to live a life that is well-pleasing to Him. Chosen by God to be a part of His race his, his progeny, his, his inheritance, his heredity. That's not a privilege enough. We are also a part of a royal priesthood. Borrows terminology from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, where he talks about the king and the priest. You shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Salvation is a prerequisite for those who are part of the royal priesthood. You have to be in a family before you can be a part of the priest. Zechariah 6 tells us that he's going to build a temple of God, and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on the throne. And thus he will be a priest on his throne. We have a king and a priest in Christ. That's what he's going to do. Hebrews 7 tells us that as a result of Christ being a priest and a king... Christ, in fact, is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Peter tells us that Christ, who sits on the throne, is a priest and king. Hebrews tells us that it's according to the order of Melchizedek. He tells us it's not a Jewish priesthood, but a spiritual priesthood according to Melchizedek, of which you and I now are a part of that priesthood. He's the high priest, and we are the servants. Jesus is the royal priest, and you and I are part of that royal priesthood. It is a privilege to be in the family of God, and as a result of that is a privilege to serve God with Christ. The privilege doesn't stop there. Because the privilege lets us also know that we are part of a holy nation. Again, it borrows from Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Community of people. That's what a nation is. It's a community of people held together by the same laws, customs, and mutual interests. 
Throughout our world, we as part of the United States have mutual interests, that, and so we do those things and through diplomatic ways or other ways to serve our interests that we have. And as we are here, we carry out our customs and we obey our laws, and that's what makes us a nation. The church forms this unique international nation having in common spiritual life from God, and we are committed to His rule. Our customs and our laws supersede the law of any nation because we are part of an international nation that has been brought together by God to serve Him. So when you bring the guys in from TMAI, and they're teaching around the world, they are immediately welcomed and brought into the great nation of God because ultimately wherever they are and however they conduct their ministry, by whatever law they are subject to, they are most importantly subject to the law of God like we are. We're of the same family. We're of the same rules, regulations, and mutual interests with them because we are all servants of the same priesthood. As a result of that, we find ourselves separating from the world's practices, not stooping to the world's practices. Finally, as we ascend, knowing that we're all part of the family, and we're all servants of Christ, and we're all achieving and have the same mutual interests, the biggest and the final of this ascending order is the fact that you and I belong to God, a people for God's own possession. Like I said earlier, this is the most precious thing to me personally. The phrase, I am his and he is mine, comforts my heart. In the midst of a trial, I cling to it. Time of forthright sharing Christ, I hold to it. It comforts me and it causes me to confess. Humbles me. Isaiah 43.21 says, My people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. God possesses me and I want to be possessed by Him. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm God's. I want everybody to know. It's who I am. The idea of belonging or own possession lets us know that we are treasured by God. And all of the things that God has done, made, and carried out, you and I are treasured by Him. The King James Version says we are a peculiar people. I like that. I like that. So you open up the page of the world, we are Waldo in the picture. That's who we are. You can look at that picture, and there is a distinction about us that makes us peculiar. And we could pick you out. If you were to open the Gospels, we would be the red letter. Why? You and I are His own possession because He bought us. He bought us with the very simple price of His Son. He bought us by pouring His wrath out on His Son instead of paying 
and having him pay our price instead of pouring his wrath out on us. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, it says, You are bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. It's a precious thing to be valued by God, isn't it? Of all the things I want and people I want to think well of me, I'm here in Jack's pulpit. I love Jack. He's a good friend. He thinks a lot like I do, and it's scary to find somebody else like that in the world. As I approach today, because I love Jack, and I esteem Jack, I want to do well here. I don't want to get up here and go, right? I want to do well because of that. But more than I want Jack's approval, I want the one who sent his son to die for me and his approval. I want the one who brought me into the family, who gave me a service in the priesthood, who, who, who made me a part of this nation, who brings me as a treasured thing to himself. That's valuable to me. Because I cannot believe that I am valuable to God. I honestly say, that whenever I meditate on that fact, I am blown away that God would value me at all. Blows me away. But the reality is not only am I valued by God, but I'm valued by God that I might complete His purpose. Notice in the text. In the text it says, right after what we've been talking about, oh, God's own possession, so that. Now, you guys are well-taught people by Jack, right? And so you know when you come across a phrase like so that, or because in the Word of God, there is a purpose there. It's a purpose clause. It's a result. He did this that there might result in something, that something might come of it. So we have the precious value of being chosen, but now in the second part of verse 9 and through 10, we have the precious purpose of being chosen. This clause actually, as we read it, should be understood as an admonition. An admonition to do what? An admonition carries a reason and a responsibility to fulfill the purpose of being part of these peculiar people. I am a peculiar person, a unique person. I am God's possession for a purpose to be accomplished. That purpose is first of all, the purpose of declaring His praise in the last part of verse 9. The purpose of declaring His praise, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. I think Calvin makes a good statement. John Calvin says this, If Lord would have His own to be safe, why does He not gather them into some corner of the earth so that they may mutually stimulate one another to holiness? Why does he mingle them with the wicked by whom they may be defiled? Makes sense, right? Why don't we just wipe out all the people off of Australia and we have God's own people in Australia? We have our own nation. We could have our own priesthood. We'd all be a part of the same race. We'd all be God's people. And being there, we'd all have this utopia. We'd all stimulate one another to good works. We'd all use our, our spiritual gifts that are there to edify the church anyway. And being there, we'd stimulate each other and we'd praise God. Our worship would be amazing. And then when we left and went to work, it would be a continuation of this great worship service because everybody's saved. Wouldn't that be awesome? 
That's not God's purpose. God's purpose is to struggle. And to be a part of the earth. Christians are here, in fact, on this earth, and we face difficulties, don't we? We face the difficulty of false doctrines that are out there. We've got to be Bereans and go back to the Word and figure that out. We face the difficulty of persecution. Even though you and I aren't necessarily strung up and run to jail, we go to work and we understand that people might think less of us. We face the difficulty of moral failures in the sight of God our Father. Why? Why are you and I in this world with its false doctrine, its persecution, and its moral failure? It's in the text. So that we would proclaim the excellencies of Him. We have a job. Everywhere we should proclaim vocally God's worthiness. What does God's worthiness mean? Has God wrought work in your life? Has God done things in your life? Has He? Hey, can you look at your life and say, yeah, God worked here and God worked... Is that right? Has He done that? I know you lost an hour of sleep. Hang with me. <laughs> right? He's wrought deeds. We'll talk about them. Have you seen the power of God in your life? If you're a believer, you've seen one major power of God in your life. You were dead, you're alive. Right? That's one big one. Seen the glory of God, haven't you? I haven't been in the cleft of the rock, and I haven't seen the hind parts of God like Moses did, and I haven't seen a burning bush. And I haven't seen the vision of all the things spinning around like Ezekiel did, but I know the glory of God. I've seen Him change people's lives. I've seen Him change mine. I, I need to talk about that. I have the wisdom of God. God and His loving understanding and realization brought to you and I His wisdom, not for us to go and sit on some rock and fold our legs and try to find, but to open the Word of God and see it right in front of us. In plain language, the wisdom of God. You ever just read in the morning your devotions? And you're reading the Word of God and, and you're done and you're so full of the wisdom of God and the coolness of what God has just told you in the Word, that, that you, you, got, you you got to have a release valve, right? You're, you're going to pop, right? So you go to work, you got to say something. you got to tell your wife, you got to tell your husband, you got to say something to somebody. Because if not, you're going to pop. Think of this for Facebook. So you can go on there and just like, cool verse. Ah, got it off my chest. The wisdom of God. We need to vocally proclaim the wisdom of God. Anybody here amazed by grace? We sang the song, right? Chains fell off. Isn't that a great Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Like a laser zapped the chains, they fell off, and I'm free. Grace of God. You telling anybody? How about the mercy? A day goes by that I don't confess my sin, that I don't walk away going, God is so merciful for me, because I know right now the things I have done to defile the holiness of God publicly and privately.
And he lets me get up today and proclaim his excellencies yet again. In spite of my failures. To this day, I am still amazingly moved by a simple little song that says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I have the love of God to proclaim to everyone all the time. Right? God's holiness. Everywhere we go, vocally, we should be proclaiming the excellencies of God, but also everywhere we go, we should be in conduct testifying that we are children of the light. Paul stands before King Agrippa in Acts 26, telling his life story, and he gets to the point where this is why I've been going around doing all this stuff. He says in verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the domain of Satan to God, they may receive the forgiveness of sin and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He says, in me, not because he's the saver of them, but in me because he's the proclaimer of the things that bring them to that. First Thessalonians tells us, he tells the Thessalonians, but you, brethren, are not in darkness. That day when the Lord returns is not going to overtake you. Can I say something to you? You cannot be in spiritual darkness then be in spiritual light and say nothing. It's impossible. You cannot have been in spiritual darkness, headed for hell with all uh, vigor and and gusto, and then be moved into absolute spiritual light and keep your mouth shut. It's impossible. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is John chapter 9. John chapter 9, Jesus is walking through Jerusalem. He heals a blind man who's been sitting there. The guy's well over 30 years old. He heals them, and he goes and reports to the priest like he's supposed to, that I've been healed. And they're like, whoa, 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 Who did this? Jesus. Jesus did it? Okay, now we can't have you going around telling people that Jesus did this. So Jesus didn't really do it, did he? Like, no, no, really, Jesus did it. I was there. No, no, you don't understand. He didn't really do it, did he? No, he did. They bring mom and dad in. Mom and dad come in and say, we want... Your son really wasn't totally blind, was he? Mom and dad realizing that they were threatening him, threatening them with their worship in the synagogue and casting him out, said, you know what? He's an adult. He speaks for himself. We're going to go shop. Okay? They bring him back in. And finally the guy said, hey, look, you guys walked by me every day. You saw that I had sunken places in my eyes, and now I don't. Now you tell me, you want me to say he's not God. Now you tell me who did this. For me, he's God. That guy went from darkness to light and he wasn't going to back off what happened. I have a sister, an older sister. And uh, every young man should never have an older sister. I believe that with all my heart. (laughs) Because... A firstborn male, like I am, is fiercely independent, and an older sister is fiercely mothering, and it doesn't work. I grew up in a very very strict household, had a lot of rules and stuff, and it was fine. I appreciate it now more than I did then. 
And uh, one of the rules was we had to go to bed at 8, eight o'clock. And uh, 8 o'clock lights out. And we, that was the rule until you got to high school. So you're 13 years old and you're going to bed at 8 o'clock. And that was the rule. And lights had to be out. Well, I'm 13 and I, this is the dumbest rule I could ever think of. And all my friends are up till 10, 11. And, and I'm in bed and in my room with the lights out. So I started reading. And the problem was is that uh, I, I lived in a basement. And we had a tri-level mom and dad were upstairs. And so I could get away with it. But my sister would rat on me. She would, she would rat on me. And so what I would do is I'd take my blanket and I would stuff it under the door to try to block the light. Part of the problem was Dad and I had built this add-on room in our basement, and uh, it was the old paneling days. And so you could turn on light and everything came through the paneling, you know. It was just partly because we built it. Uh, that was about where we were with that. And no matter how much I would try to find the places and block the light, I couldn't block the light because the room was dark, but the light... I mean, the, the outer room was dark, but the light inside the room would find its way out, and she would rat me out every time. I'm not bitter. <laughs> you have the light in you in a dark world, and you cannot block it out. It comes out of your pores, your eye sockets, your ears. You open your mouth, light. To a dark world. True believers cannot stop it. Genuine salvation is obvious. God has wrought a crucial change in your life. If you walk into a morgue and there's 50 dead people and one live people, per, people, person, can you pick out the live person? Can you? Death to life. It's obvious. Dark to light. We're not talking, uh, it's not an environmental change, but what we're talking about is the inner state of your soul. And that change cannot be hidden. It's like hiding a rattle on a snake. You walk into the Serengeti, can you find the zebra? Can you? Stripes! My wife is amazing. She has this ability to... She knows her house so well. She knows that something's out of place. The house is her. It's extension of her. And she can tell if a picture's a little changed or something happened. We can clean. My wife goes and speaks now and then. And when she's gone, we're like... Of course, it's like the two hours before she comes home. But we're cleaning the house very... Working, 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 and she'll walk and say, oh, you had pizza the other day. How'd you know that? She can just pick stuff out, just like she just sees stuff. I was here doing some studies for a couple weeks at the Master's Seminary. Went home, they moved a wall. I didn't know it. I'm not kidding. We need to be seen and noticed by the world. There's a purpose. There's a purpose is based in our position. The purpose that you and I have to proclaim the excellencies of Christ is based in one simple fact. Look at verse 10. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Being a prophet of God was not a fun job. Nobody wanted it. Moses didn't want it. Jeremiah didn't want it. 
Ezekiel was not too excited about it. Hosea is a prophet of God, and God comes to Hosea and says, I want you to be my prophet, and I want you to go marry a prostitute. Not just marry her, I want you to love her with all your heart. Hosea did that. He took in Gomer, and he cared for her, and he cared for her children from who knows who. And he went and he bought her back out of slavery. In chapter 1 of Hosea, talking about the birth and the naming of the children, and they named the children because God tells them what to name them. First child, a daughter is named Lo-Ramaha. No, Lo, uh, I'm going to get it right. Lo-Ruhama. Lo-Ruhama means not my people. Here's this daughter. and Everywhere this daughter went, they said, hey. They call out her name, and it was like saying, hey, not mine, come here. What a, what a brutal thing. Next, uh, they uh, give birth to a son, Lo-Ami. Lo-Ami means no mercy. What a, what a brutal thing to name your daughter. What a brutal thing to name your son. No, not mine, and no mercy. The point is the contrast current Israel of Hosea's time with ancient Israel. You were my people, now I have to reject you. you. I did have mercy on you, now I'm not going to. You and I have been called out of darkness into marvelous light. You and I were once not gods, but now we are. You and I were once had no mercy, but now we do. What a contrast for us, right? We know the mercy of God. There's a general mercy to God of everybody on this earth. To all of creation, the sun and the rain fall and shine on everybody the same. The thing about the sun and the rain and the general mercy of God is the fact that it will expire. There's an end to it. However, there's the saving mercy of God that never dies. And the mercy he's talking about here is that you once were part of the general mercy, but you didn't have the special mercy, and now you have the special mercy. Nobody deserves either one general or saving, but you and I have received the special saving mercy of God. We are embraced by God. We are His own possessions. We weren't before, and now we are. We are brought into God, and we are made a part of His nation, His priesthood, so we can serve Him, all because God had mercy on us. And once we had no mercy, now we do. We have changed positions of no mercy to mercy. We have changed position of not His people to being His people, and now having mercy and having become his people, we have all the attending privileges of that. It's an amazing, enduring, and endearing picture of God's adoption of us. He went to the orphanage, kids with no family and no mercy, and he grabbed us out of there and brought us and made us his own. That's who we are now. (laughs) Last year I was in Brazil, and uh, with a family I know, and they have been missionaries there for a long time. They're very familiar with the town we went to. And while we went to this town, they had a 10-year-old girl that they had known for years and years and years. And this 10-year-old girl was wandering the streets. Her dad really wanted nothing to do with her. Her mom didn't care. Went from man to man to man. And this 10-year-old girl was with men who were unscrupable. And she was at their mercy. This girl was wandering the streets and at the mercy of men any and everywhere. And they decided that they would adopt this girl. And so because they knew people in that town and in the legal 
uh, in the sense of child services and the, and the judges. They got it all lined up. And so we arrive in Sobral, and they're going to adopt this girl, and they go and they find this mother, and the mother signs off and says, yes, everything's in line. All they need now is the father's signature who doesn't care about this girl, who hardly ever sees this girl and wants nothing to do with her whatsoever. And they go and say, Have it. we need your signature. He says, no, no. He blocks the entire process, and they had to leave this little girl. Absolutely vulnerable. It's not our story. We were vulnerable. Now we're not. Mercy has displayed to us Watching the power of God is an amazing thing. Having the power of God affect your life, there's not really a word. Indescribable, overwhelming, amazing, awesome. Don't they all just kind of fall, they just kind of fall cheap? Now, there are two types of people here this morning. Some of you may have heard this so many times. You could have said it better than I could. Probably very true. But you have never embraced the living stone, Jesus Christ. You're here this morning, even though you've heard the gospel, maybe here for the first time you've never heard this, but maybe you've been here before and you've been hearing it and hearing it and hearing it. And you know what? We're talking about today is your salvation. You stop stumbling over the rock and rejecting the stone. You start accepting him as your Savior, Jesus Christ. Because God, who welcomes us into his family, makes us a part of his nation, and we are his own possession, has provided a way for that to be possible. And it has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with his provision of his son. What Jesus did for you is he went to the cross and he died for you in your sin. He went there, he suffered, all types of physical things, but at one point, the skies went black and God began to pour out the cup he did not want to have in Gethsemane, but willingly took anyway, and the wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus Christ in your place. And without that being done, God could not have brought you into his family. God could not be your father. He took your place. And now the love and the grace and mercy of God because the veil had been torn in two and now God had been made access to you and I. And you simply by placing your faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on your behalf, you can be welcomed in. And then you're going to have something to say. Your life is going to have purpose. It's radically different purpose. Our verse told us, but you, talking about believers, reminding us of all the privileges and position that we have in Christ and that we are valued by God and in fact that we are His own possession and His Father has taken us up to His own bosom and holds us tightly because He loves us. But He's done so that you and I might go about the world and bravely and boldly proclaim the excellencies of Him. Are you fulfilling your purpose?
sharing the gospel with people? Are you talking about His glory and His wisdom and His love and His might and His deeds and His mercy? Are you, are you telling anybody? Are you praying for souls? Is your life so being changed in your conduct that you just looks like you have light? Because you're living by a holy nation standards and not by the standards that we have in Burbank, California. Are you different? Can I say something to you? If you claim the name of Christ and you are not proclaiming the excellencies of Him, you are in spiritual decay. You're a rebellious little child of God who's trying to stuff in every possible crack a blanket. To hide the truth. Why would anybody want to hide the truth of their salvation? Spiritual decay. Is God not the greatest Father in the entire universe? Is God not the greatest Father in the entire universe? You tell somebody. You tell somebody. Pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word, which is so amazing. We appreciate it. We ask that you'd work on our hearts. We ask that you'd help us to, to live for you and to proclaim it. May the truth of your word, realization of your love, Unlock the jaws that we have in our hearts and may it flow. May others come to Christ because we have proclaimed your excellency. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.